Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Welcome, Big Woods Bible Church family. Those of you who are in person and those of you who are worshiping online, I am glad you are here. Um, I am in great need of prayer, and so I want to start there. Um, and then we'll dig it into our text this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just praise you this morning for who you are. As been mentioned already, we are so unworthy. We are so unworthy of you sending your Son your innocent son, your only son, to die for something we had done and something we continue to do. God, if we only saw our sin in that moment of temptation, if we only saw our sin in light of this fact that that God takes sin seriously enough to send his own son to die for us, Oh, how that would change the way we deal with sin and the way we look at sin in our lives. God, I confess that even this week I'm, I am guilty of sins more numerous than I'd like to count or admit. I'm pretty convinced that I, I sin and don't even know it. God, I praise you for the sacrifice of your son on my behalf and on the behalf of those who are under my voice this morning. God, I pray that you would be glorified in my message today. I pray that you would just take me out of the way and that you would do a work that I can't do and that we we would see you, the risen Christ, as, as supreme above the fleeting pleasures of sin in this life. God, we ask these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So much uh, appreciate the time of prayer by Kenny. Uh, Really appreciate Mike Fry kind of handling the children's sermon. That was a blessing to me. I got an email from Josh on Wednesday or Thursday saying that that Mike was going to handle that, and that that was off my plate, and so I really just appreciate Mike and uh, and he did a great job. I have to say, though, that, that when I used to play Battleship, I didn't stack my Battleships. I always positioned my siblings in front of a mirror so that I could know where their ships were. Sin literally was the mirror in that case, right? Friends, if we are to understand our text this morning in Romans 7, we must do so in light of where we've come from. And so Pastor Tim has been taking us through this this study of the book of Romans, and and what we've seen so far is this, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of man. God is holy. God is righteous. Man, on the other hand, is sinful. There's no one righteous. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, not even one, Romans 3 says. All have turned away. We've traded the truth about God for a lie, and we've worshipped created things rather than the Creator, the only one worthy of our worship. 
And so what do we see from God? We, we see that one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture, God said, it says, God gave them over. Three times it says, God gave them over. He says, you know what? Have it your way. Throughout the book of Romans, there's this, as Tim calls it, this case being made against us, right? Attesting to the righteousness of God and the sinful, painful plight, I believe he says, of all mankind. And the outlook doesn't look good for us as sinners. We see in, in Romans 6, 23, it says, the wages of sin is death. Our sin merits death before a holy and righteous judge. God must punish sin wherever he finds it. But the good news this morning is if we read on in, in Romans 6.23, yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do, how do wages that we've earned become a free gift? How does the death that we've earned become eternal life that we haven't earned? Because of the verse that Matt read earlier. Because God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But for those who believe, we are being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 25. You see, Romans offers us a, a clear view, Lord willing, a clear view of our salvation. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone, we are declared righteous. That is, we've, we have been justified. That, that word justification, it's, 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 a, it's a judicial term. It's to be declared innocent before a holy God. We, we are guilty, but Christ paid our penalty. Jesus bore our sins, nailing them as a certificate of debt to the cross. And in doing so, he freed us from the legal consequences of our sin. That's what justification is. And as Tim reminded us a few weeks ago, he says, where justification imparts the righteousness of God to man, sanctification imparts the righteousness of God through man. Our sanctification follows our justification. Sanctification is the activity of God which liberates the Christian from the power of sin. God is changing us from within as we yield to him. Tim uses the word yield to his will. Two weeks ago, Tim discussed that, that we've died to the law through the body of Christ and we are, we're released so that we can now serve. Last week, the, though we're not under the law, there's still some good stuff there, right? He gave us three points about the law. He said the law is a mirror. It, it reflects our sinfulness. He said the law is a hammer, that it ruins the sinner. And that's a good thing because thirdly, his third point was the law is a gift because it points us to our Savior. And this is where our text picks up this morning. So please follow along as I read Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. I'll be reading from the ESV version. Romans 7, 14 to 25 says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if, if I do what I, I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that, that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It was probably about a month ago that Tim reached out via email to me and, and asked about me filling the pulpit on this particular Sunday. And, and, and because it was so far out at the time, he wasn't sure where he would be. And, and you know, he says, I'll be somewhere in Romans. And, uh, and so I immediately thought to myself, I love it. You know, I was kind of counting you know, the, you know, perhaps the, the way he was going to hammer it out. And I was like, just so hoping I would get Romans 8. I so much love Romans 8. It is like my favorite chapter of the Bible. Like Romans 8, Ephesians 2, like just great, great chapters. Turns out he's saving Romans 8 for himself. We, we have before us a, a challenging text, and it's not just challenging to read, but it's challenging to understand. One that theologians have wrestled with since the time that, that Paul wrote it. Because there's really, there's two main schools of thought here. On this text, some would say that, that verses 14 to 25 describe Paul's life as a Christian, while the other camp would argue that this is Paul writing about his life prior to his conversion. You see, those, those ascribing to this school of thought that, that it's before his conversion would argue that there's, there's just too much bondage to sin here for this to be Paul the Christian. Christians aren't in this kind of bondage to sin. Yet the other side would say that there's, there's too much desire for good. There's too great a love for God's law for this person not to be a Christian. Certainly, Paul has to be referring to his life after conversion. And it's not hard to see the dichotomy in the text. I was talking to one of the elders about this text and, and just like wrestling with it. And he's just like, well, just read it. And so, see the dichotomy, I won't tell you which one, see the dichotomy play out in the text. For we know that the law is spiritual. That's post-conversion, Paul. But I am of the flesh sold under sin. That's pre-conversion, Paul. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That's pre-conversion, Paul. Now, if I, I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. That seems like that should be like post-conversion, Paul. And so on and so on. Post-conversion, pre-conversion, you read through there. You, you see kind of both sides of that argument, if you will. And so we've got to dig deeper and, and, and shed some light on, on what really is the spiritual state of Paul that he's, as he writes this, as, as he refers to himself. Is it pre-Christian Paul or is he referring to himself as a Christian believer here? 
And in studying this text, uh, I, I read something from the commentators. The commentators pointed out something I had never noticed before in reading it. They pointed out there's a, there's a major contrast in Romans chapter 7 between the verses that Paul has already spoke on, those being 1 through 13, and the verses that I'm preaching on this morning, 14 to 25. And it's this. Notice in, in your Bibles, in verses 8 through 13, specifically 8 to 13, Paul is speaking about the past. Every verb there is in the past tense as you look through there. But in verse 14, where my text picks up this morning, he switches to the present tense. And so see it, 8 through 13, past tense. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced, that's past tense, in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once, that's past tense, alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died, past tense. The very commandment that promised, past tense. Life proved, past tense, to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, past tense, and through it killed me, past tense, and so on. But beginning in verse 14, Paul not only moves from from past tense to present tense in terms of his verb usage, but he simultaneously uses only first-person personal pronouns. Now, now I'm not much of an English scholar. In fact, that was a stretch for me right there. But when I read something, and I could be wrong about this, but when I read something in the present tense with first-person pronouns, I would say that I'm reading a text written by the author about himself concerning his present state of affairs, which seems to indicate to me that Paul was indeed referring to post-conversion, that he indeed was a believer as he writes verses 14 to 25. Furthermore, to, to kind of elaborate on this point a bit, we look at the context, right? We should always look at context. What comes before? What comes after? And so we look back at chapter 6, particularly verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6. Verse 12 says this, Romans 6, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. These two verses in particular seem to point to this fact, that while we are delivered from the dominion of sin, we are not yet as believers delivered from the presence of sin. I mean, why else would Paul have to tell us here in in chapter 6 not to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies? Why else would Paul implore us here not to present our members, that is the parts of our body, to sin? You see, if sin were, were no longer an issue for the believer, then Paul's just wasting his breath here. Recall point number one of Tim's message. How many of you recall that? We could show hands. He's not here to count. Back when Tim preached on Romans chapter 6, verse 12, do you recall his first point? His first point was this. If you yield to your passions, sin will reign. If you yield to your passions, sin will reign. Now, we may not remember that point, but I I would speculate that most of us remember the analogy he used. He talked about Lazarus. When Jesus 
goes to Lazarus. He's four days dead in the grave. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks out of that grave after being dead for four days. What, what, what did Jesus say? He said, take off your grave clothes. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. And Tim's point was this. If you recall, he said, our grave clothes don't come off easily. Th- though we are converted, though we are born again, though we are freed from the bondage of sin and death, we are tempted to wrap ourselves back up in our grave clothes that stinketh. This is what we're seeing in our text this morning. In, in many ways, the problem in chapter 7 is the same problem of chapter 6. Though, though we see all these statements about you've died to sin, sin has no dominion over you, you're no longer a slave to sin, sin is no longer your master. Simultaneously, we see the command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not offer any part of yourself as an, uh, to sin as an instrument of wickedness. You see, friends, when we, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are transferred from death to life. The, the moment we are saved, the, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We are redeemed. We are changed. We are born again, and the chains of sin are broken. Yet the temptation to sin still remains. And so point one of my message this morning, point one of my message is this. The power of sin no longer reigns, but the presence of sin still remains. Though we've been saved, though we've been redeemed and forgiven, the tendency towards sin is still in our lives as believers. Alistair Begg says, as a result of grace, we've been saved from sin's penalty. One day we'll be saved from sin's presence. In the meantime, we're being saved from sin's power. Look back at the words of of Paul in our text this morning, verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There's a a battle raging here. You can just sense this this battle that Paul is fighting. Paul wants to do what's right, but something's keeping him from doing it. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Something deep down inside, Paul wants, wants to do the right thing, but not the ability to carry it out. We see in in verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 21 again, so I find it to be a law that when when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And so what we're seeing here is Paul's heart and his soul and his mind, they they long to do what is good, but there's this battle that's raging between the new man and the old man. Between that which was born of the Spirit and that which is born of the flesh. And if, and if you think that this, is, this argument is unique to Paul's struggle here in Romans 7, turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Or just write that reference down at the very least. Galatians 5, verse 17. I'll give you a moment to get there. Galatians 5, 17. Galatians 5, 17. 
Galatians 5.17 says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Man, does that sound familiar. It's as if Galatians 5.17 gives us a summary statement of our text in Romans 7 this morning. This is the point that Paul is trying to make. That that the Christian lives in two extremes. Temporarily, we, we live in this world of flesh and blood, and therefore we are subject to the conditions of mortal life. We are sons of Adam. But spiritually... We have passed from darkness to light. We've passed from death to life. And we now share in the Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and are now the possessors of his divine nature as well. We are indeed new creatures in Christ, yet we are without sin. And friends, I've got to tell you, we, we must prepare for a, a long battle because there will be no time in your life this side of glory where we will be exempt from sin. Until we see Christ and we're made like him, our, our flesh will crave what is contrary to the Spirit. Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said this, he said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. And if we're honest, if we're honest this morning, that's me, and that's you too. And if you need further proof this morning that that Romans 7 is is indeed Paul writing in the present tense as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I I don't think we need to look any further than at our own lives. This is me in the text this morning. The things that that I, I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. There, there's this battle that rages inside of me. I, I've been a Christian for years and years and years, and there's not a day, there's not a day that I don't have to, before my feet ever hit the floor in the morning, pray that God would guard my, my eyes and my heart. There, there's not a day that goes by where, where I don't have to tell myself to to eat to the glory of God, a battle I often lose. There's not a day where I don't walk into my job and I I pray, God, let the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you today, my rock and my redeemer. There's this battle that rages inside all of us. There's this war in our flesh. Paul's the wretched man I'm the wretched man, and you are the wretched man. Point number one, the power of sin no longer reigns, but the presence of sin still remains. Point number one. With that said, it seems strange that Paul would say in verses 17 and 20, verses 17 and 20, Paul says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 20, now I I want to do... Excuse me, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so what's Paul saying here? Is he he denying his responsibility as a sinner? Is he he blame shifting? Is he like the devil made me do it kind of thing? What what, what is Paul doing? No, you know what Paul's saying here? 
Paul's saying that, that sin is not consistent with the new man that I am. He's saying that that, that that part of me is the old man. When I sin, it's the old man that sins, not the new man. Paul recognizes that, that as he sins, he acts against his nature as a new man in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we must own up to our sin. Yet we must also realize that, that the impulse to sin does not come from who we really are in Christ Jesus. It comes from the old man. Friends, hear me out. If, you, if you've taken our text this morning to mean that, that you can somehow live any way you want to and still call yourself a Christian, you're gravely mistaken. Friends, unbroken, unrepentant patterns of sin are inconsistent with a born-again believer. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. That's why Paul says what he says in verses 17 and 20. So it's no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. He says it isn't the new man that sinned, it's the old man. He says, when I, when I sin, I've put my old grave clothes back on. Paul's essentially saying, look, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he's crying out. He knows he's a new creature in Christ. He knows he's no longer an Adam. Yet sin still remains in Paul. And I think that he was a Christian for 20 years when he wrote the book of Romans. He's conscious of the presence of sin in his life and he despises it. He hates it. That's how we should feel about our sin as well. It should. Verse 14 of our text says this. I'll hold off on that thought. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Skipping down to verse 21, it says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's really going on here in Romans chapter 7? Is Paul just, is he just airing his dirty laundry list of, of sins for all the world to see? And why all of this law talk throughout the verses that I just read? What about the law? Point number two of my message this morning is this. The same law that cannot justify the sinner cannot sanctify the saint. The same law that cannot justify the sinner cannot sanctify the saint. Paul in our text this morning is describing his sense of hopelessness in the mirror of the law. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh, for I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You see, friends, Paul's problem isn't his desire. He wants to do what is right. His problem isn't knowledge. He knows what the right thing to do is. Nope. Paul's problem is his lack of power here. Paul lacks power because the law gives no power to sanctify us. The law says, here are the rules, and you better abide by them. Yet it gives us no power to keep those rules. 
Recall Tim's message from last week, the law is a mirror. It reflects the sinfulness of sin. Paul is looking into the mirror of the law, and and what reflects back is a man who falls desperately short. In the same way that the law could not justify Paul as a sinner, it cannot sanctify him as a saint. That's what verse 14 is all about. You read verse 14 and you're like, man, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. You see, the spiritual law, it cannot restrain the fleshly man. As much as Paul loves the law, it can't keep him from sinning. The word flesh in the, in the King James, it uses the word carnal, which, which basically speaks of the, the person who can and should do differently but doesn't. Paul sees this carnality in himself. He he sees his desire to gratify the flesh, and he knows the law. And though it's spiritual, it has no answer for his carnal nature. Paul recognizes that a spiritual law cannot help him defeat sin in his flesh. That's what it, it means by I'm sold under sin. Paul is in bondage under sin, and the law can't help him out. He's like a man arrested for a crime and and thrown into jail, and the only way the law will help him is if he's innocent. But Paul knows that he's guilty, and you and I are guilty. And the law argues against him, and it argues against us, not for us and not for Paul. Recall from last week, Tim said the law is a hammer. It it ruins the sinner. Even, Even though Paul says that he's carnal, that he's characterized by the flesh. It doesn't mean that he's not a Christian. In fact, his awareness of his carnality is the evidence that God has done a work in him. Martin Luther says this about verse 14. He says that 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 is the proof of the spiritual and wise man. He knows that he is carnal and he is displeased with himself. Indeed, he hates himself and praises the law of God. Doesn't that fly in the face of all the self-help gurus and Instagram influencers of our time? I received an email from a brother in Christ this week who knew I was preparing a message on, on this um, passage. And, and the gist of the article was this, that the answer, this is what's being preached to, to our children, to our wives, to our family. The, the answer to all of our problems lies within ourselves if we only, like little gods, would assert our desires and moral institutions as absolute, we would be happy. It's not what we see here in the text. And so what we're really seeing here is Paul is speaking to his Jewish audience. Recall, he's speaking to this this Jewish audience, and what he's saying to them is this. You, You know what the problem is? It's not my view of the law that you should question. It's not my view of the law that you should question. It's me that you should question. He says, I'm the problem. My teaching on the law is not a reflection of what the law is like. It's a reflection of what I'm like. I don't measure up. Paul says, in my own strength, I can't measure up. Jewish friends, this is is what happens. If you seek sanctification apart from the Spirit, no matter who you are, if you seek sanctification in this way, you will fail. Your works of the law will not save you. Your keeping of the law will not sanctify you. 
Point number two of my message, the same law that cannot justify the sinner cannot sanctify the saint. The mirror of the law will reflect where you fall short. And like a hammer, it will ruin you. And your only hope, your only hope is verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 25, excuse me. Recall what Tim's third and final point last week was. The law is a gift. It points us to our Savior. Point number three of my message this morning. The grace of God frees us, not from persistence in the battle, but from the consequence of the fight. The grace of God frees us, not from persistence in the battle, but from the consequence of the fight. Fellow believers, be encouraged this morning. One has come before you who has kept the law perfectly. The beauty of Romans 7 is that it leads to Romans 8. Matt read the first verse this morning. I don't want to step on Tim's toes too much for next week. He didn't allow me Romans 8, but I've just got, I don't know how you preach on 7 and not go to the first couple verses of 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. How do we defeat sin in our lives? Romans 8. We walk according to the Spirit. Friends, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, right now, at this moment, dwells in you. And in the same way that that Jesus, Jesus triumphed over sin and Jesus triumphed over death, we can now triumph over sin and death. His victory is now our victory. Sin is ultimately powerless over us. We will still struggle with sin in this life. Yes, we will. Do we got to keep battling sin in our life? Yes, we do. But in our struggle, in our battle with sin, our hope remains that, that though we stumble and though we fall, though we battle imperfectly, we don't need to fear because the battle's already been won by a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb. And here's what this means for us this morning. It means that we don't become complacent in our battle with sin. But rather, it frees us up to fight all the harder. Because even when we fall, we can't lose. Christ's victory is our victory. I love wrestling. And I vividly remember watching um, in 2008, um, 141-pound NCAA championship match between number one-ranked undefeated Cal Poly Jr. Chad Mendez versus the underdog Jay Jaggers from Ohio State. And it was the third and final period of the wrestling match, and and I remember Jaggers was winning 5-1, and there was only 16 seconds left in the match. And this is for the national title, right? These guys dream about this their entire lives. They make this their goal, their their entire lives is to, to stand on the top of that podium. And Jaggers is 16 seconds away, winning 5-1. I 
against undefeated Mendez. When suddenly his, his left ankle becomes like awkwardly stuck between like the bicep of Mendez and, and his chest. And, and when Mendez twists, it literally just popped that ankle. I mean, you didn't have to be a doctor to understand that his ankle was in a bad way. And he shrieks and cries out, my ankle, he broke my ankle, my ankle. And, and the match is immediately stopped. And, and he's just writhing in pain. This man who's Life goal is to stand on top of that podium. He's 16 seconds away, winning 5-1, and his ankles turn sideways. The ligaments had, had, it turns out the ligaments had in his ankle had virtually exploded. He broke his ankle. People in earshot heard it. And he tries to stand up, and he tries to bear weight, and he, he falls down. He tries to stand up and bear weight, and he falls down. And just as his injury time is, is coming to an end, he turns to his coaches and trainers and he says, let it go. Let it go. Once the referee blows the whistle, I won't feel it. And with just 16 seconds left, he limped his way to victory. And Jaggers later said, he said, I don't care if someone came out with a chainsaw and cut my leg off. There was no way I wasn't going to finish that match. You know why? Because I couldn't lose. You see, when there's 16 seconds left and you're up 5-1, you really can't lose. Franz Johnson might argue that point, but. Friends, that's the same way we should battle sin. With reckless abandon. Knowing that the victory is already ours if we just persevere in the fight. To quote Tim Keller, Keller says this. He says, religion says... I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Friends, let the finished work of Christ on the cross free us up to fight sin with reckless abandon, for it's a battle we cannot lose. We have before us this morning the communion table. And I can't help but think what a, what a neat passage of Scripture, what a neat opportunity to come before the throne of grace and partake in the communion elements. And I will caution you that when you hear something like, it's the battle we can't lose, if, you're, if your immediate thought about that is that I can just now sit back and be passive about the sin in my life, then you need to repent of that. It, it, it's not permission to be lackadaisical about sin in our lives. As Christians, we are most richly blessed to have a Savior who, who came and, and, and as we've already mentioned, He came and lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. He, he, he obeyed every law. And in our place, he, he bore our sins. He, he took the penalty for us not obeying the law on himself. The penalty that was due us, Christ took upon himself. And he was crucified on a cross. And for all those who believe in him, for all those who would lean the hope of their souls on the fact that, that Christ paid the price for them, 
their sins are covered. If that's not you this morning, I would just invite you, even just right there where you are right now, if you don't know this Jesus whom I, I've talked about this morning, if the worship team has talked about this morning, that right now in your seat, you can know him. You see, Christ took his body, and his body was broken. We have bread. This is what looks like a pita pocket. I'm not sure what this is. Um, but his, his body was, was broken. And, and this isn't the, the real body of Christ. That's, no, that's not what we're saying. This is a symbol of the price that Christ paid. His body was broken for you. And, and, and likewise, his, his blood was shed for you for the remission of your sins. And so as the elders come and deacons come to, to serve the elements, just to, a little bit about how that's going to work. Um, they're they're going to serve you. There's some tables here to the, my left and my right in, in the center and also in the back. And so just uh, whenever they're ready, you can get up and, and come up and partake in the emblems. I, w- I would encourage you if, you, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you not to take it. It's, it's meaningless to you. But if you do believe that Jesus is the Lord of your life, then I would invite you to, to partake. You don't have to be a member of our church body. And so whenever you're ready, please come. We will partake together, so please keep a hold of your bread and cup, and we will pray and read some scripture, and then we will partake together.
Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just come before you with eyes closed and heads bowed. And as we survey our own hearts, Lord, and the, the wickedness that still resides there, Lord, God, help us to see sin the way that you see sin. Help us to have a better understanding of the price that it costs for our redemption. God, help us to see the risen Christ as supreme above the sin that remains and indwells us, Lord. God, we just pray that by your Spirit that you would help us to overcome, Lord. The Word says that where we are weak, you are strong. So God, we just beg for your help. We beg for the Spirit's guidance in our lives. And we praise you for the cross that says, I don't have to measure up because Jesus measured up in my place. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so on that night in the upper room, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said to them, take, eat, this is my body which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.